What is happening, everybody? I said that like I was expecting you to respond. So please take a moment and respond to your radio and just let me know what is happening. I'll insert a quiet noise here. No, this is terrible. How does she wrap something every freaking week? Oh my God. This is... Anyway, I was like, Daylight is the best Taylor Swift song and I would fight anyone who says differently on that topic. What is new, everybody? Coming at you solo one more time. Uh, mostly because this is being recorded in the middle of the night. And I promise next week I will have a co-host with me. Actually, I will have at least two co-hosts with me, maybe three. And they will be people you've not met before unless you've listened to other podcasts. And I don't want to say much more than that, but they are a delight. And it's already scheduled. It's on the books. We're getting it recorded this week. So it's going to be awesome. Hope everyone's doing great. I missed a podcast last week. And (laughs) last week was just a week, y'all. I'm just telling you, I'm here to tell you last week was a week. So um, really quick, I'll just give you a kind of a, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to recap last week, the FWC commission meetings, and then I'm going to dally just a hair into a question I keep getting asked about restricted hunting areas. And I'm doing both of those together in this podcast because this will be the last kind of serious solo one that hopefully we do for a little while because we're going into the summertime. Hopefully we're going into the fun time of year. Everybody's getting out fishing, having a good time, sandbarring, beaching, springs running. We did a springs run this weekend. Oh my God. Can I just tell you all a story real quick? We go on the springs run on the Withlacoochee River and we go, we have a delightful day at the springs. And then we go to look for this other spring that I don't know. I don't quite know everything about this, but um, so people that shall remain nameless, but they were named Stacy Whittem, had this pen for a spring somewhere and anyway, they were like, we may have to jump a log or two to get in there. A few logs, something like that. Listen, y'all, my boat was suspended in the air out of the water. I, If not for David Stock and just his pure armed forces strength from being a veteran, I, I don't know that my boat, I, my boat would still be there. We would have had to walk back. Like it was just, it was crazy. So beautiful stretch of river, beautiful stretch of country. Um, a little bit stressful. Will now gets to say, you, ever, you have you ever seen that meme where it's like, you can't hurt my feelings. I held the flashlight for my dad. Will can now say, you can't hurt my feelings. I have been on the Withlacoochee River with my dad. So, um, but all in all, we had a great weekend. Very good time outside uh, on the Springs Run. We put that in Cast and Blast Florida, the group. If you have a mud boat or an airboat, um, we'll probably do at least one more of those this summer. Um, there are a lot of good time. There are a lot of good times. They're a good time. They're a lot of fun. Uh, we go out there and hang out and basically cook for about three hours and eat um, all kind of junk food and burgers and steak and pork and sandhill crane this time. And so it was a very good time. And I'm teasing Stacy because everyone that knows her knows she's a delight, but I'm giving her some grief about that particular spring. Anyway, um, so last week we had last Monday, there was an F or a Lakeland City Commission meeting. I went to that and made a comment. So I sat through three hours of it. Made a comment at the end. There were no homeowners there about the Lake Parker duck hunting situation. And my comment was essentially, hey, um, this isn't really something the commissioners can regulate. So the Lakeland City commissioners can regulate. This is a a broader issue than that. So if we can help out and be good neighbors and meet with the homeowners, we'd be happy to do that. And um, the city commissioners seem pretty willing for us to do that, eager for us to do that. Like, this is not something they can fix. So... 
um, I set up, the homeowners have been at every commission meeting since February. Like they've shown up at almost every one of them on Mondays at nine, every other Monday at nine. So I said, well, this coming Monday, May 9th, I would go to a local coffee shop at 930 and be there if any homeowners wanted to meet. None of them could make it. So um, I'm choosing not to judge with that. I'm choosing to try to take the high road here. But um, I will say it was a little interesting to me that none of them could make it on this Monday, even though they've made it to countless commission meetings at the same time on Mondays. But I am going to meet with some of them uh, later this week. And um, we'll see how it goes. I'll keep you guys posted as that kind of unfolds. But that was last Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, it's rare that the FWC commission gets booted around like that. But this this time it was a Tuesday, Wednesday instead of a Wednesday, Thursday or I've seen it even on a Thursday, Friday once. Um, so we had the FWC commission meetings in Gainesville, drove up to Gainesville for those. Um, day one was, uh, what, what was the big top? Oh, so day one had two things I needed to speak on. One was uh, the alligator changes and regulations, which allowed for 24-7 alligator hunting and the use of air bows, which evidently um, are big in, with folks that have disabilities or inabilities to be able to pull. I don't quite understand. Like you can pneumatically charge the bow. So I guess you don't have to cock it the same way you do a, a crossbow. Um, so there was a gentleman there that said he had been hunting for years with one. Uh, he had a special permit or something. And so opening that up, and I, I can't remember if he was hunting with for other animals or alligators or what, but couldn't have been alligators because it was illegal unless he had dispensation to do that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They were approved to use for alligator hunting and um, the hours were changed so that you could hunt alligators 24 hours a day. So um, I think that was a good regulation change. I think it was, you know, um, I didn't really have much risk in it, but I thought it was one. I, I said in my comments, you know, we like to come yell at you guys when you get stuff wrong, but I feel like it's important if we're here to make sure we comment when you get stuff right. And that was one they absolutely got right. So, um, that was the first thing of the day. The first, uh, maybe I think that was the first topic of the day anyway. And then, um, I actually snuck out during the middle of the day. Some, some folks texted me and they're like, you got called because there were a couple of sessions, one on volunteerism. I was going to compliment the agency because as you know, we volunteer quite a bit with them, but I've seen countless other NGOs and individuals volunteer time to the, to FWC for various things. So, uh, I wanted to compliment them on that and 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 be a, a cheerleader for them on that. But I wasn't there because um, Mike Elfenbein and Representative Lauren Mello were there. Mike Mike did a presentation on the Agriculture Project, which we've talked about countless times on this podcast. And uh, he Lauren Mello came up. She's the representative from the Naples area, the state rep. And at lunchtime, they went over to the University of Florida. Uh, Center, uh, IFAS Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants and did a tour there. And so I've been over to the center a few times. I've met a bunch of the guys over there, gals over there, and I, I they invited me to tag along. And absolutely, I was doing that. Anytime I can hang out with Mike is awesome. Anytime you can hang out with Lauren is awesome. Anytime you can hang out with the guys at UF is awesome. So it was a win-win-win for me. The only thing that was bad was I wasn't there to support the agency on the, the volunteerism thing. So we went to UF IFAS and uh, they got the grand tour, got to see the the plants. I think I've talked about this stuff on there, but they, they have a lot of controlled experiments. They have these massive tanks out there. And when I say massive, they're probably, 
I don't know, six feet in diameter and they're deep. They're probably four feet deep, maybe even more than that, four and a half feet deep. And so they plant different plants in them and then they, they test herbicides on them and they, and I should pause there and say, A, I'm not a scientist and B, they don't, they're not determining the herbicide legitimacy that's determined by the EPA and FDACs. And there's a whole permitting process for the herbicide to be tested, but they are doing further tests on it to see how it behaves with different plants and animals and everything else. They had a tank there with bass in it. So it's pretty fascinating to see that, um, kind of see how they arrive at some of the science that's out there, talk about limnology and lake quality and nutrient loads and how the aquaculture project kind of fits into all that. And it's just, it's fascinating to watch this thing unfold. And so uh, really appreciate Mike and Lauren allow me to tag on for that and, and to Dr. Farrell and everybody at the, at the uh, center for making some time for us and hanging out with us and um, just all around a, a cool team to be able to hang out with. And then Mike and I hot footed it back to the commission meeting because that afternoon was public comment for items not on the agenda. And my comment was directed at something that we discussed in our aquatic plant management um, technical advisory group last month. And I think I told you guys we were down in Okeechobee. We, we hung out down there. We did, we studied the aquaculture project, aquaculture project a little bit and talked about, you know, some of the pros, cons, herbicides, no herbicides, everything else under the sun. So one of the things that kind of comes up in that discussion every time is funding. And funding is a tough nut to crack when you get into invasive plant management. And the reason it's a tough nut to crack is it doesn't make sense, even to me sometimes, the, the, the way the logic works, even though the logic does actually make sense. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's a thinker. It's, it's one of those things you, you kind of have to pay attention to a little bit. And I'll give you an example. Um, most, of the, most of the herbicide use in the state is on hydrilla, which is a plant that as a duck hunter, I love to have out there. So if they want to do treatments where they cut trails in hydrilla, which is something we're very familiar with on Lake Toho, that can cost more than doing a much broader scale application where you try to knock out way more hydrilla because A, you're having to maintain those trails. So that could recall require more treatments more frequently. And B, you're trying to keep it from creeping. I mean, kind of the same logic there. I guess I'm talking in a circle a little bit, but it can actually cost as much or more money than it would to be. And I'm making this up, but to do a trail that's 500 acres may cost as much as a broad scale treatment of 2000 acres. And obviously it depends on the lake and the logistics and the depth and everything else that goes into that. But there's a complexity to that, that sometimes it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't reconcile kind of with the, the narrative around spraying that we, we hear out there in the social media world so much. So, one of the things that comes up all the time is funding and in the tag, it, it comes up. I, I would say if we've had 10 meetings, it's come up in five of them. And so this budget year, this legislative year, um, FWC asked for an additional $4 million for invasive plant management or aquatic plant management. And that $4 million was to go for, I think the term was innovative solutions. So that could be stuff like aquaculture, but it could also be stuff like other innovative solutions that may be out there. I, I, I'm assuming it could have gone for, and I'm assuming, okay, don't hold me to this. Don't, don't put a gun in my head, but I'm assuming it could go for like biological control studies or 
you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what, but aquaculture is the thing that kind of bubbles to the surface right now because that was such a hot topic during the, the conversation. So um, the legislature did not pass that line item. So FWC essentially did not get that extra $4 million to spend. So it's always interesting to me that the general public will stand back and yell, stop spraying, stop spraying, stop spraying. But we know, because we have plenty of data, that if they stopped spraying and went entirely to mechanical harvesting, that the lakes would be overrun with plants because they couldn't possibly do that. Like they're, they wouldn't have enough money or manpower or, well, they, they wouldn't have enough money or harvesters to treat everything and the harvester cost would be so high they wouldn't be able to get everything treated. So, and I'm talking fast through this. If you wanted more details, you can ping me on it. We can have a discussion online or whatever. But the idea there is we need to get more money into the harvesting budget without, in my opinion, impacting the spray budget necessarily. So we want to allow them to continue to spray because they're doing a good job with it, I think, um, within reason. And, and obviously, I don't agree with everything they do there. But at the same time, I think they're generally doing a good job with it. But also, we need to get more money into some of these innovative solutions like aquaculture. And so my public comments at the end of the day were directed kind of to that ideal. And it, you know, the the commission, the commissioners, um, particularly the chairman, Chairman Barreto, uh, likes to talk about the governor and his, his relationship with the governor, his relationship with the legislature, and kind of put that out front and center as though, um, you know, they've got a direct line of communication, which I'm sure they do. But for this project to receive kind of the fanfare or the um, we kind of want to hitch our wagon to it and then that money did not be in the budget seems kind of contraindicative of priorities somewhere legislatively. And I'm not quite sure where that was. So my public comments in the afternoon were directed at can we go see, you know, <laughs> what I said was this. And I guess I could go get the soundbite, drop it in here. But what I said was generally this, you know. I went to the uh, the Wildlife Corridor Summit a few weeks ago, and we talked about Florida Forever and Rural and Family Lands, which is combined $400 million we're going to spend on land conservation that the legislature approved. And this past week, that would have been a week ago now, this past week, the governor's uh, allocated $5.3 million to FWC for manatees, $30 million statewide, but $5.3 million to FWC for manatees. Yet we couldn't get that $4 million for innovative solutions for plants. And that doesn't make sense in my head because you guys know me, like the listeners of this podcast know me. I, I love manatees. I really, truly do. But at the end of the day, that $5.3 million is, man, it sure feels a little bit like lip service. And it particularly feels like lip service when we didn't get the additional money for plants, which is a fight that some of us are having to file, have a lot more frequently and waste a lot more energy, time, effort, everything else on. So uh, those are my comments at the end of day one. Day two, uh, the only thing I commented on was the redfish regulations. Now, I teased online that I would offer in some insights on the redfish regulations and my thoughts on it. So here we go. Um, and first, I should say, this is in response to Fletcher Hallett. Hallett Insurance, 904-315-5812. Not going to sing the song, but you can double the L's, double the T's. Hallett for all your insurance needs. He's been a sponsor of our show for eons at this point. Like back since we started the show in the late 70s, Fletcher has been a sponsor of it. And you should check him out for all of your insurance needs if you're in Florida. Commercial, business, home, boat, life, whatever you need. Reach out to Fletcher. Tell him you heard about it on the podcast 
and he will get you hooked up. And if he can't, he'll just talk to you about fishing and you can go back to wherever you came from as far as your insurance goes. Like he's just a super honest guy. Everyone that's called him loves him. Give him a call, but maybe don't call him tomorrow or Thursday because I know his wife's expecting any day, but give him a call anyway, because they need the money. Well, I don't know that they need the money, but this is an ad you guys just, it's a, it's a commercial. Okay. So call the dude, buy some insurance for him. Back to the redfish regulations, because I know this is a thing that is near and dear to many people's hearts in the cast and blast world. So my comment I made on the redfish regulations was actually, um, I have been recently added to the board of Florida guides association. And so my comment was, um, actually a comment from them, but I was okay with the nature of the comment. And it was in support of staff's recommendation for new redfish regulations with the condition that the big bend area be one redfish per person instead of two redfish per person because they wanted to increase big bend area from one to two. And that was mostly due to stakeholder engagement that requested that. Um, although the escapement rate, I would say did, did meet that. Here's why I'm okay with that because I'm the science first guy. I'm the consumer guy. I'm the public lands guy. And you guys are probably wondering, well, wait a second, why would you support that? And here's why. One, I think consistency is a really good thing. Like, I think we're talking about the difference between one redfish and two redfish. So it's not like a closed season or you're still able to take redfish. You're still able to take redfish on a boat. So if you have a boat full of people, you can take, you know, three or four or whatever it was. I know there's boat limits in there, but I think those will be negotiated out. But... One thing we saw with the snook closure the last several years is when Marco Island was opened at the south end on the opening day of snook season, that area would just get absolutely obliterated. People would just flock there. So one, you have unintended consequence of everyone's going to go there because they can keep more fish. Two, you have the, you have the idea of it's just easier. Like it's just easier in my mind to say you can keep one redfish per person per day in Florida. That seem I don't like, and again, this is just me. I don't like that every WMA has different rules. I don't like that the Keys Marine Sanctuary is cut up into 700 different units and you can keep a 12-inch gray trigger fish here and a 13-inch there. I don't like that. Like that In my mind, that makes it hard for the average person to go fish. And I know we live with more technology than we've ever had and information's available all over the place, blah, 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 blah. But I still think, is there a reason we can't keep it simple? The other side of that is, I think this new, and I've talked about the new redfish management and, and techniques, I've talked about it on my podcast, this podcast, but we've also talked about it with Taylor Willis on Huntfish Florida. I think one of the things that will be born out from going to this new management strategy is we will see less closures, less executive orders, less, uh, I'm not going to say fly by night because I think the agency does a pretty good job with the way that they manage their fisheries, but I'll say that term just for purposes on a podcast, less fly-by-night management in the, or, or maybe less reactionary management um, because we'll have more metrics. So if you have an algal bloom, but you're also measuring brood stocks and escapement and uh, mangroves and seagrasses and sawgrasses. And if you're made, if you know, if you have seven factors that you're looking at and one of them is bad to me, you know, it, it depends on how bad that one is. It doesn't necessarily mean you close the fishery down because one of them is, is bad or declining or whatever. So I think we're, we're gathering up more evidence to keep the fishery open and, or if the fishery could bear 
more take, I think we will see that borne out in the new system as well. So I think we'll have less, well, you're looking at escapement and escapement's an old number because we haven't done a stock assessment in a year. Yeah, but this, my, my take was, yeah, but that's the science and it's not failed us yet. Okay, we've heard you, we listen to you, we understand. We're gonna add all these other metrics to escapement and build them into Travis's term, a dashboard so that we can manage redfish moving forward. I think it's a really smart way to do it. And I think what will happen is if we trust the science and we trust the people managing the science, we're going to get to a spot where we don't see fisheries turned on and off as frequently. We don't see as many EOs issued and we will see a more consistent uh, fishery with less evidence for the sky is falling guys to have something closed down. So that was my kind of justification in my mind and my okaying with uh, going with the disagreeing with staff, particularly on that one issue. I will also say CCA Florida, American Sport Fish Association, all the guides at FGA, everyone agreed with that kind of assessment. So it doesn't seem like a high risk thing. The other thing that I think will happen is there was a guy that spoke very eloquently there. He was from the Big Bend area. Obviously, they make their money. That guy does. He was not a member of FGA. Off catch and take fishing. So catch and keep fishing. He was concerned because I can't remember. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I want to say it went from a eight fish per vessel limit to a four fish per vessel limit. And they can run six clients. And occasionally they do mixed charters. And so I was really sympathetic to this because we will sometimes do mixed duck hunts. So imagine if you said in a duck blind, you could take two model ducks. How do you decide who gets to shoot the model ducks? I get that. Um, I My guess is that in that region, we will have a full six fish vessel limit so that every client on their boat could take their redfish. I don't, I think, I think that would be the compromise for reducing it from a two to one um, and making it a, a full six fish bag on that. So hang with me if you're in the big bend. I think, I think these metrics are going to bear out that that fishery is, is healthy and can bear what it will bear with regards to how, how the, uh, how the science and those metrics kind of Forgive me. I'm a Southwest Florida guy where we're sitting at a 72% escapement and we have a closed fishery. So I'm looking very much forward to these new metrics because I think they're going to help us get our fishery reopened um, in a way that is not arguable by the social media mobs. The other thing that kind of happened there is cool to see a bunch of guides from the Indian River Lagoon show up. Jonathan Moss was there. Billy Rotney was there. Some guys I, I know a little bit. Um, and they were all very, uh, very eager to close the IRL. And based off what I know, I haven't fished over there in a while, but based off what I know of that region and the water quality and everything else going on there, it makes sense. And it makes sense off the escapement numbers, like the the old metric, the, the singular metric we used to use. That was the one region that didn't meet that number. And ironically to me, it was open there, but closed in my area. So, um, I think we will see that closure happen. Everyone said, so what's happened now? Nothing has happened. All that was approved was the draft proposal. The executive order for Southwest Florida is continued, continually renewed until this rule is finalized. So we'll continue to have an EO that keeps Southwest Florida closed until this rule gets finalized. 
I think this rule will hopefully be finalized in July, July 13th and 14th in Jacksonville is the next FWC commission meeting. And my hope is it'll be finalized up there. So that was, I think that was pretty much everything. I, there were some other topics on fisheries, but mostly they were alignment. So I know they changed the state regulations for cobia from 33 inches to 36 inches. That's basically just uh, aligning with the, the Gulf Council recommendations so that we would have the same bag inshore and offshore or nearshore and offshore, I guess are the right terms. Um, that I, I had no dog in that fight. I, you guys know I couldn't catch a Kobe if my life depended on it. So, but that, that makes sense to me. Again, simplicity makes sense to me. Um, that was the FWC commission meeting. I got out of there and turned and burned south and was able to film with our good buddy, Bill Cooksey, who you've heard on the podcast a number of times over the years and uh, National Wildlife Federation was they're doing a, a film on sportsmen and Everglades restoration. And it's what's called an evergreen piece. And I'll be honest, I was a little nervous about it because, you know, there's some some divisive issues down there and, and groups that kind of look at things differently on both sides of the, the issue. Um, but I trust Bill implicitly and I trust National Wildlife Federation. They've always been good to me. They've been fair. I think they really try to do a good job. So um, I was able to go out on one of Matt Pierce's ranches. Matt was out of town. He couldn't join us. And uh, just show them around and show them the land and the cattle and the alligators and the birds and just, you know, why this spot is so special to us and why it matters to us as sportsmen and how, you know, ranchers help benefit the water management. And I hope that all comes through in the video when the final product is done. I'm sure it will, but um, we'll probably see that. I'd imagine in a few months, I know that stuff always takes a little while to get put back together and edited, but they were downloading footage and everything right there that night. So they were, they were jumping on it, but that was cool. That was uh, with Bill and Jake Latondras, who's a name. Some of you guys may remember from the end of the line podcast. He did some podcasts with Rocky. He worked as a film guy for Tom Roland um, for, for a couple of years. So this guy I'd never met, but we'd kind of known each other through, through social media for a while, but it was cool to hang out and, and always good time to see Bill. Got to hook him up with Amy Seaweed to go on a python hunt. And uh, I would just like it noted that I am the most successful media podcast person, python hunter of all time at this point. Because every, when I go, it's kind of easy. They just fall all over the place. But when other people go, it's not nearly as easy. But uh, looking forward to seeing that. And I appreciate Bill and NWF and Vanishing Paradise for including us in that project. Um that brings us to, so, so that was everything of last week. That was my recap for last week. Uh, that was my recap of the FWC meetings. Now I'm going to pivot and I'm going to have just, if you're done with FWC meetings, you can turn it off right here. I'm going to talk about a question that I get asked a lot about restricted hunting areas and about the Lakeland Lake Parker situation and about how that's all going to shake out. And I'm going to give you Travis's opinion and my thoughts. And this is a, I like to think it's a deep thought. I don't know if it is a deep thought, but I'm going to give it to you and we can wrestle around with it and discuss it. And y'all can text me or call me or whatever, and we can fight over it. But uh, I'm not sure I'm right. I say this to you guys a lot when I'm by myself. I'm, I just think this is a thing we need to be talking about. So here we go. The question that I get asked a lot, and I, I got it four times in the last week is, don't you think the hunters at Lake Parker used poor judgment in hunting there? And then the other side, the other, the other way this is kind of framed is 
if hunters aren't doing a better job with their public relations on things like this, hunting will go away because PR is all we've got. So if the general public's not accepting of it, it will go away. Now, I do think that's a real concern. And I've talked about a little bit about that in the past with our economic value on the landscape. But I want to hang out for just a second on the responsibility of hunters to behave in a certain way when the law says that they can behave another way. All right. So we have this situation a lot in the outdoors. Um, we have it in, where else do we have it? Let's say we have it in tarpon fishing. Like the mortality near Boca Grande on, on tarpon, catch and release tarpon fishing is eight to 20%. Those are numbers I've seen spread over studies over a 15 year period, uh, 90s into the early 2000s, eight to 20%. So one in five tarpon you hook is going to die. I would guess there are days when it is higher. As a guy that's tarpon fish Boca Grande area for a long time, I would guess there are days it's it's higher. I mean, there's days when it's eight out of 10, but there's also days when you go eight for eight and none of them get hit. And I'm talking mostly mortality. I'm sure the fish swim off and die from fatigue, but also shark mortality is just a huge thing down there. Just a huge thing. You, you tire this fish out and the sharks know the tarpon are there. So they concentrate in that area and just have a field day on them. So I, I struggle a little bit with this because I feel like tarpon fishing in that area is a little bit akin to trophy hunting as is defined by the... PETA Humane Society crowd in that the reason I'm catching that tarpon is simply so that I can catch it and take a picture with it or say I caught it. Now, I'm not advocating against that at all. I'm I'm fine. I love to tarpon fish. In fact, tarpon fishing is one of my favorite things because it's so close to hunting the way I do it off the beach. But I'm I'm setting a, a, a table here for the way this conversation goes a little bit because we like to take you could say it's virtue signaling. You could say it's the moral high road, whatever, in these conversations. But I'm going back to hunting in urban settings or hunting near houses. And so I had a homeowner ask me that question. Well, how can you justify that? These hunters clearly used bad judgment. And I don't know that that's the case because, whew, hang with me. I'm going to hit your head when I make this turn. But let's talk about economics for just a second. If you went way back in the history of economics, there was a guy named Adam Smith. This would have been like the 1700s. And he had this principle called the invisible hand principle. And it's the idea that you're a baker and you make bread and I need bread. So I give you money for the bread. And so we have a relationship. It's a, it's a customer merchant relationship. And if someone else wants to make bread, they can either make better bread than you, or they can make bread as good as you and maybe sell it a little cheaper. They can maybe make bread a little worse than you and sell it a lot cheaper. And the in, the invisible hand moves the economy around. It makes everything work. And so if I shift from you to them, you will then do something to either raise the quality so that I come back to you because your bread's better or you'll lower your cost. So I'll come back to you or you'll offer bonuses. Something will happen. And that's how the invisible hand works. And so we, we, we rock along using this invisible hand economy for, you know, couple hundred years. And in like the 60s, 70s, uh, Milton Friedman gives a gives a talk and he talks about how in economics, and he's a famous economist, in economics or in, in business, a business's priority should be the shareholder. 
And we have an obligation to do what is whatever is legal to benefit the shareholder. So we've shifted away from the consumer and we've shifted over to the shareholder, the person that's investing in this company. And no longer are we doing what is right and it's not governed by the invisible hand anymore. Now it's governed entirely by the profit driver because that's what goes to the shareholder. All right. So just accept what I just said. I'm not an economics professor or anything else. I can send you this in, in books or, or clips or however you want. You can go YouTube invisible hand theory and, and kind of get the gist of how this works, but just hang with me and accept that what I said is, is true. You can challenge me on it later. Okay. I think in society we have shifted our entire thinking in that similar vein to the whatever is legal shareholder view. And what I mean by that is in Lakeland, in the city we're talking about with Lake Parker in Lakeland, um, their roads are over overrun with people. There are too many people there. The roadways can no longer handle it. The city commissioners all know this. They're very frustrated by it. However, the city commissioners cannot require a developer. They cannot require a developer. Why? Because of what's legal. They cannot require a developer to expand roads and add in road infrastructure if they want to put a development in. They're not allowed to. Why? They're operating under the confines of whatever the system is and doing whatever is legal. Okay. I want you to just remember that because now we're going to go talk about hunting in an urban area. You're hunting under the confines of whatever is legal. So I think when we get into this conversation of ethics, it's really, there's this old school hunter side of me that I probably get from my dad or my grandfather or somebody that's like, well, why would anybody want to hunt there? I don't want to hunt where I see houses. I've said that on the podcast before. But at the same time, we've also said, you know, the rate Florida is going, there's going to have to be some kind of urbanized component of hunting if hunting's going to exist. I think we're talking about the same thing here. I think we're talking about holding ourselves to a standard that no one else in the world is holding themselves to. No other entity, no other industry, developers aren't holding themselves to this standard. Cities aren't holding themselves to the standard. Homeowners aren't holding themselves to the standard. So if no one else is holding themselves to the standard, why is there an expectation floating around out there that hunters should have to hold themselves to this standard? And I'm not saying we shouldn't be kind and we shouldn't be courteous and we shouldn't be good neighbors or we shouldn't be well behaved or we shouldn't represent hunting well. But I am saying we should be allowed to play the same game that everybody else is playing. And that was a lot. I don't know if I'm right. I think I'm right. I, I Obviously, I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think I was right. But I would love to know what you guys think about that. Um, think if I'm all into something there or if I'm missing something there. But I definitely think that's a that's a that's a conversation that I don't think anyone is having right now regarding why aren't we why are we treating hunting and fishing? Why do we treat these the the things we love? with like a different code of ethics and honor when no one else does. And does that make it less honorable or less ethical when everyone else is behaving within the confines of what is legal? Why wouldn't we do that as well? I'm not sure. And like I said, I, I need some people to wrestle that around with me. So I'm sure I know who I will hear from this week on that. But hopefully I'll hear from some folks I don't expect to hear from so we can we can get to the bottom of it and, and like I said, really wrangle with it. 
Um, I think that is everything. The other thing that I should probably clear up on Lake Parker is a couple of weeks ago, I said there is no hunter that would shoot a snail kite. I want to clarify this because I got a phone call about it and said, well, that's just not true. A hunter could, sh- could shoot a snail kite. What I mean by that is a hunter in my mind is someone that goes and buys a license to hunt. Someone that seeks to do this thing legally. I don't know if someone that, I mean, accidentally, I, yeah, I guess you're, you throw up to shoot at a duck and a, in a, a kite or whatever flies behind it and you have an accident. I could see that happening. I'm, I'm sure it has happened in the, in the history of hunting, but I don't consider a hunter to be someone that would go out and shoot that because to me, that is a poacher. I think if you looked up the verb hunting, you could classify a poacher as a hunter, but as a sportsman, I would never classify a poacher as a hunter. So if you want to say a hunter is someone that takes an animal with a weapon, then yeah, I, I guess anyone that kills anything is a hunter. But I, I just, I, I said that in the podcast a couple of weeks ago and I had a couple of people mention it to me and I just wanted to spend a few minutes and clarify it. Um, I don't want to say hunters are like some noble species on the planet. However, hunters I know, all hunters I know, most hunters I know, no, I would say almost all hunters. I, I mean, I, I tend to run with a crowd that I think highly of, but I don't know of any of them that outside of some flukish, freakish thing would ever shoot a snail kite. So um, I just wanted to go back and kind of paint that up. If you're still listening to this, bless you and keep you. Thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time. I know that we've gotten a bunch of reviews in the last couple of weeks. I'm going to let Emily read those when she gets back. Um, because that's her favorite thing in the history of the world. I think Nate, Nate may be back in a couple of weeks. And like I said, we have special guest hosts lined up for next week, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And I promise you, I swear to you, it will not be nearly this serious, dry, or anything else. Hope everyone has a great week. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes if you've never done so. You can join All Florida. We have memberships stood up there. Again, we still don't have all of our swag supposedly the ship date on the last stuff that we're waiting for is May 19th. So we should have it by the end of the month. Now I thought it was going to be the first week of May. Now it's the 19th, but that is confirmed. I've seen like actual shipping details. So, um, if you join, just be with us on your swag, your gifts, they will, they will get to you eventually. I promise we won't miss anybody on that. And we appreciate everyone that's already joined. Uh, it's kind of blown away. We've had a ton of people join as life members already. Um, it's really kind of overwhelming and we're really excited about what all Florida's got coming. And, um, I think we figured out the last glitch in that podcast. So we're getting ready to launch that. Um, I'm not sure if we've set a date yet or not, but I'm hopeful to launch it mid to late summer. Um, may even be like early August, like when we lost launched the conversation series initially, but got some really cool conversations. Some folks that we've heard from before in our conversations, but also we've got some really cool new things we're going to do. Um, it won't just be conversations. You may actually hear me wrestle with some folks and fight with some folks about some of these things that we've talked about. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope it makes Florida better and I hope it makes us a better informed constituency um, when we talk about conservation, everything else under the sun. Hope everyone has a great week and in honor of Nate, y'all stay woke. Stay woke.